Welcome, everyone, to episode five of New Number One, a podcast covering the only can see in comics, new number one issues. I'm your host, Pierce Lydon. Uh, if, you're, if it's your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for checking us out. Uh, we're covering all the number one issues, or at least most of them, that were released November 7th, 2018. That might be today. That might be some time in the past for you. It depends when you're listening, but we're glad you're here either way. Uh, we're covering eight books today uh, from Boom Studios, Dynamite Comics, uh, Image Skybound, Marvel, DC, and Titan as well. And uh, so we're just going to hop right into it. The first book that we've got up is Empty Man from Boom Studios. Here's the solicit. Horror sensation Colin Bunn returns to the world of Empty Man with artist Jesus Hervas in this new ongoing series. The nation is in the grip of a terrible pandemic. The so-called Empty Man disease causes insanity and violence. Government quarantines are mandatory. One of the afflicted is Melissa Carey. And the next step should be to quarantine her. But those who enter quarantine are never seen again. Melissa's family won't let that happen. All they have to do is care for her, keep her worsening condition a secret, and they'll do anything, trust anyone, to keep her safe. So, uh, Colin Bunn had originally come out with a series in 2014 called The Empty Man with Vanessa Del Rey on art. And uh, from what I, I didn't read that, but from what I understand, this is sort of like a more intimate you know kind of more family approach to uh family-centered approach to that series and uh bun takes real slow burn to this one giving us some of the overall problem before drilling down to the family at the center uh the carey family melissa andrew and their daughter vicky and uh the empty man disease you know it 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 caused people to sort of break out into these like violent fits you know it's easy to see it as as kind of a metaphor for some of the things going on now you know we have people walking into supermarkets and and shooting them up and and you know it's just these violent outbursts that we hear about kind of all the time um but also at the same time you know you can kind of see it as um, a metaphor for things like alzheimer's and sort of other degenerative diseases like that um, where you kind of slowly start to lose these people that you love. I think that while it's good that Bun gives us a good overview of kind of what this empty man disease is, um, he spends so much time giving us context that I don't think he really gets anything compelling about the characters. Uh, you know, we get, we meet, we meet Melissa and we know that, that, you know, something's wrong with her, that she's got this disease. We meet her husband and their daughter. Uh, we see a little bit of how, this disease is affecting both of them. And by the time we get to the end of the book, I, I mean, it just, it, it kind of ends pretty abruptly. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of okay. Um, I think if the disease itself you find really compelling, uh, you know, I think this is an issue that's really going to work for you. I'm not really getting a heavy, like, horror vibe from it. Like, it doesn't seem scary to me. And uh, I mean the the art on this is is pretty effective. Uh, Jesus Hervas uh, with colors from Nico Guardia and uh, lettering from Ed Dukeshire. Hervas's work in conjunction with Guardia's colors have this kind of more refined, like Jeff Lemire quality to them. Um, there's a section where uh, Guardia's got these like great purples and stuff on the page as we kind of like get towards the end of the book that. Are, you know, really bring out a lot of the expressiveness in the artwork. 
I think Hervas's acting and expression work is really good. Uh, and he's able to deliver, I would say there's more of like an unsettling weirdness in the script that really does work for it. But on the whole, I think overall, the issue feels a little bit schizophrenic. You know, there's elements of possession stories and zombie stories and murder, murder cult stories. And it's not really clear what it wants to be or what it aims to be. And, you know, maybe if I had the context of having read uh, the previous sort of volume of this, I would have a better understanding. Um, but at the same time, this doesn't seem like I was supposed to have read that. You know, it doesn't seem like a sequel. It kind of seems like a continuation. And so, you know, the book ends so abruptly that whether you're on board with it really is going to hinge on your feelings about the threat and not so much the characters. Because at this point, you know, there's not a lot to really go on. Uh, cool. Uh, next up, we've got James Bond 007, number one from Dynamite. And uh, that's from writer Greg Pak, artist Mark Lamming. Colorist Triana Farrell, and letterer Ariana Marr. And here's the solicit. The Odd Job epic begins in a new ongoing James Bond comic series by superstars Greg Pak and Mark Lamming. Agent 007 tracks a smuggler into Singapore to secure a dangerous case, contents unknown. But a Korean mystery man wants the case as well, for very different reasons. And if Bond and this new rival don't kill each other, the ruthless terrorist organization known as Uru will be more than happy to finish the job. So uh, I love James Bond. This is a really solid first issue for Pack and the rest of the team, um, especially one that sort of recontextualizes an old foe. Uh, I think Odd Job is super super fun, uh, but he's kind of goofy, right? So uh, it's fun to see Pack do something, uh, you know, just a little bit more updated with him. You know, he ma- he makes him a little bit younger and 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 stuff like that. Uh, and I like what they're doing, what, what Pack and Lamming do in the opening. You know, there's a, it, it's kind of like a classic Bond opening. Like somebody's going to get this case and then this like fight breaks out uh, with characters that we don't really know who they are uh, on a dance floor where seemingly nobody can really be bothered by the fight that's going on. They're just there to dance and, and, and this is kind of all going on around them. And, uh, it's, you know, it's very crowded. Uh and I love Triana Farrell's use of color to indicate uh, changes in light and location in the first three quarters of the book. Uh, you know, it's like very green and then very red and then very blue kind of washing over to the point where you can even see the transitions and the changes in light. And it's really, really cool. It's, it's very effective in just getting you from sort of setting to setting. Uh, and Lamming's art is like he's got a fairly re- realistic style that works very well for a licensed book. I mean, you know, with something like this, they're not looking to go super experimental. So this is right in the wheelhouse of what it what you want. Uh, this is what James Bond kind of looks like. I mean, he, you know, he looks like, uh, you know, good looking guy, black hair, wearing a suit. Lamming delivers that, you know, pretty perfectly. Um, I do think, though, that that Pac's plotting in this script does sort of paint Lamming into a corner, though. You know, the locations feature a lot of actions in, uh, in close quarters, and, but, you know, they're in these sort of like large spaces and there are these big movements that need to happen. So uh, Lamming has to keep utilizing these wide shots, but the way they're kind of, you know, f- he's forced to sort of frame some of this stuff, you know, I, I don't think it always gives us a great sense of movement. So some of the fight scenes, to me, they don't really land, I think, quite as well uh as they should but there's still a pretty good energy to it 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 just um 
you know, I, I think it would have benefited from uh, Lamming being able to be freed up to, you know, when he's able, like, there's one part where uh, James Bond, like, grabs, like, a knife and is able to like, kind of pull that out, and we don't have to, it gives us, like, a, a quicker kind of, um, you know, you know, two panels almost, like, bullet points versus, like, these, like, long kicks and punches across these, across the full page, um, these, like, wide shot panels that just, they seem kind of static compared to, like, the quicker reading of, like, those two, like, more square panels. That might sound really nitpicky, but in terms of just kind of the way that the book is paced, I think I think you'll understand more more from seeing it than from hearing the audio description of of some of this stuff. Um, I think that overall, though, this book does work for big James Bond fans. I mean, there's an unmistakable level of iconography here. Um, you know, you're gonna now. I, I know it says that Oddjob's you know the the villain right from the get go, but uh, it kind of as as uh, my editor at Newsarama, David Pepos, noted. Uh, there's sort of like a almost like a rom-com feel to the way James and Oddjob uh, kind of first meet, and uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I you know I guess you could liken it to something like Mr. and Mrs. Smith in in their kind of fight scene, um, which is kind of funny. But the most important thing for a book like this is that it feels like James Bond story and absolutely does. So if you like James Bond, you like Greg Pak, uh, you like Mark Lamming, um, I think you're in for a treat. Next up, also from Dynamite, is Battlestar Galactica Classic. This is from writer John Jackson Miller, artist Daniel HDR, colorist Natalia Marquez, and letterer Taylor Esposito. The solicit is as follows. The remains of humanity have been fleeing the Cylon menace until now. Joined by another second fleet of fugitives, Commander Adama sees the opportunity to strike back. Can he continue chasing an Earth that may be a myth when the chance for victory is real? Plus, the treacherous Count Balter returns in this miniseries, timed for Battlestar Galactica's 40th anniversary year. So I'm not super familiar with classic Battlestar. I did love the reboot when it came out. Uh, I have watched, I have watched a bunch of classic Battlestar, but probably not all of it, and probably not in in the right order. It's more of like a whenever it was on TV kind of thing. This issue works really well, though, with really minimal setup. It's supposed to take place kind of after the finale of the TV show. And uh, I was really impressed with Miller's pacing on this. I mean, it had that sort of, it opens with the framing device of the captain's log and we get Adama right away. And so as long as you are vaguely familiar with the concept behind Battlestar Galactica, it's easy to just kind of get dropped into the world. Okay, cool. You know, there's Adama, there's Starbuck, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Battlestar has always been about questions of morality and survival and Adama kind of struggling with keeping his people alive, but still feeling a sense of duty to, you know, all of the alien races that they come in contact with. And I think that Miller does a really good job of, one, I mean, just placing that idea right at the center of this. They come in contact with some other aliens. Their fleets are in similar situations. Uh, they're also on the run from a, from a, a force that is uh, looking to exterminate them just as the Cylons are looking to exterminate these humans. So, you know, there's a lot of parallels there, and he's basically got to f- make some decisions here. Um, and uh, that's great. I mean, that's compelling space drama. Like, that's what we're looking for. 
and and especially that's that's what Battlestar is, you know. So so Miller does a really good job of keying in on that, getting right into it right away. Uh, Daniel HDR's artwork with the various ships and like space action is pretty good. Uh, it it kind of feels like you're like you're watching the show, and and again with like licensed stuff like this, it's just so important that that's done right. I do think that there's a little bit to be desired with the character work. I think that most of the characters who we sort of know who are based on actors who are real people are, for the most part, pretty solid. I think some of the expression work can be a little static and can be like, uh, you know, could use could 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 have used some punching up, you know, if the acting was a little bit better on there. Um, The aliens, though, never seem to be characters that he fully gets a handle on uh they and they can sometimes come in weird contrast with the very realistic depictions of the human characters uh you know you just get a few like the the okati uh are the aliens in this and they they look a little bit like the navi from avatar um like they're sort of like cat people um and they just like every once in a while they just their expressions be like just they look kind of goofy next to these like very like the very grizzled uh a, a commander adama and 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 uh I, that's something that might smooth itself out as 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 uh, the the artist has to draw them more but uh you know overall this is very in the spirit of battlestar galactica it's a fun way to celebrate 40 years of the franchise um you know it's just a six issue miniseries so this will wrap itself up pretty quickly um, so if you're looking for more classic Battlestar, I think that this is definitely something that you will be into. Next up, we've got Outer Darkness from Image Skybound. This is from writer John Lehman, artist Afu-chan, and letterer Pat Brousseau. And the solicit is, A world of sci-fi and horror, Outer Darkness is set 700 years in the future, against the background of a war between humanity and a savage alien race. Mankind has mastered interstellar travel and colonized the galaxy. But during our travels into space, we've discovered a horrible truth. When a body dies, its spirit is cast into space, into the terrible, infinite outer darkness. Turns out space is filled with spirits, ghosts, demons, and all manner of necro-essences that are lonely, scared, confused, corrupted, or just plain pissed. Demonic possession, hauntings, cosmic horror... All is commonplace on a starship as extraterrestrial encounters and alien attacks. Outer space is terrifying. So yeah, super fun setup in this one. John Lehman has a pretty wry sense of humor, and he throws us into this one without with like pretty little warning, and the book is a thousand times better for it. This is a space story, not unlike, kind of like Battlestar Galactica that we just spoke about, um, kind of like Star Trek, kind of like Farscape. Um, but simultaneously, Lehman does the thing he normally does, which is take everything a little bit of a step further. Space horror, let's put ghosts in the ships that are dealt with as like kind of a regular part of everything. That's not enough for you. Well, the warp engine used to be a god, that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, Afu-chan is the extremely talented artist that uh, Lehman's teamed up with. Worked for Nickelodeon, Marvel, Boom Studios, more and more. Um doing comics, character design, illustration, and really brings a polished feel to the book. Characters are incredibly well-designed, very, very distinct. I mean, you know, you're not confusing anything that's going on here, and it's just paced out really well. Panel layout and shot choice is really effective. It kind of does feel like you're reading a cartoon in terms of how the pacing goes and kind of uh, 
you know, how the artist lets some of these scenes live and, you know, credit to layman's script on that as well. But a lot of times when something seems like storyboards, you, you know, there's a lack of energy in those, in those pages, but the way that Afu-chan uh, chooses their shots, it's hard for your brain to not fill in the movements between panels. And that's kind of amazing. You know, if you're familiar with John Lehman's previous book, Chew, uh, you know, you'll you'll know he has a reputation for turning really well-known tropes on their head. So, you know, given a new setting and genre and armed with uh, an artist like this, uh, it'll definitely be exciting to see what more is in store. I thought this was a great first issue. Can't wait to see what else he's got planned. Next up, we've got a couple of Marvel books. First is Marvel Knights 20th. This is from writer Donny Cates, art by Travel Foreman and Derek Friedoffs. Colors by Matt Mila, and lettering by Corey Petit. Here's the solicit. In celebration of the legendary imprint founded by Marvel's CCO, Joe Quesada, a new crop of talent stands poised to tell a groundbreaking story across the Marvel Universe. In the cemetery, the blind man does not know who he is or why he has come to this particular grave at this moment. He doesn't know the burly police officer with the wild story who has approached him or the strangely intense man who sits in the rear seat of the patrol car, his eyes flashing green. But all that is about to change, because Matt Murdock is beginning to remember. In a colorless world without heroes, the spark of light must come from the dark. So if you're not familiar with Donny Cates at this point, I don't know what to tell you, uh, since pretty much, I, I mean, he's been kicking around the industry for a while, um, his big breakout being God Country in 2016, I believe. And, uh, you know, now he's Marvel exclusive. He did Thanos, uh, Cosmic Ghost Rider. Uh, he's currently doing Venom, which is better than Watchmen. Marvel Knights 20th was something that Joe Quesada has really credited Cates with bringing to Marvel and saying, hey, like, what are we going to do for this? And, um, you know, from a storytelling standpoint, this one left me a little bit cold. Um, but I think that is a little bit by design. You know, Kate is acting as sort of the showrunner for this series, uh, which is, it's not meant as like a relaunch or a reboot or anything. Um, it's, it's supposed to be a celebration of that period of, of comics, you know, Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti coming back tomorrow or, you know, being at Marvel and taking on these like lower tier characters and doing something new with them on some level kind of saving Marvel from the brink of bankruptcy and and making uh, Daredevil and Luke Cage and Punisher and all these characters a lot more relevant. Uh, and and you know, that eventually leads to Joe Quesada becoming editor-in-chief and eventually becoming uh, chief creative officer, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Donny Cates put together a team for this, so it's himself, uh, Matt Rosenberg, Trini Howard, and, uh, or excuse me, Teeny Howard, and uh, Vita Ayala. And uh, they'll be each writing a couple of issues. Uh, I know the second issue is is uh, is Matt Rosenberg's issue. I'm not sure if he's writing more than that. But, you know, the big question here is why? You know, um, we know we, we meet Matt Murdock and, and he doesn't know who he is and he doesn't know why he's at Karen Page's grave and he doesn't know why his why he has powers, like why he can sort of see even though he's blind. Uh, and he doesn't understand all these things and and we meet Frank Castle, but he's a police officer, and he also kind of doesn't really know what's going on. And we meet Bruce Banner, and we meet 
Foggy and Jennifer Walters. And, you know, we meet all these characters and we don't have a lot of understanding about what's going on with them. But, you know, Kate seeds out kind of who the players in this story are going to be. And I think that that is him just getting that out of the way so that the people that he's added to his team can take those characters and do something interesting with them. Now we understand, you know, that's the goal of this kind of this book is is really, hey, now we understand kind of like a baseline for what's going on here. We understand who some of the characters here are. Um, and now we can move forward. And more than anything, honestly, I'm blown away by Travel Foreman's work here. He's been a favorite of mine for some time since his tenure on Animal Man, which spawned out of the New 52. And uh, I think he's really gained a bit of a reputation as a horror artist kind of because of that. Um, but I, I think he's a lot more versatile. His lines in this are a lot more weighted, uh, you know, and, and in turn, his expression work and his um, character renderings are a lot stronger. Marvel Knights has a has a reputation for being kind of the, you know, grim and gritty. And he's able to add a heaviness to the book that, you know, is is perfectly rooted in remembering that those grim and gritty halcyon days of the original Marvel Knights. Uh, you know, it's oh, it seems like it's always raining and, you know, all this stuff like, you know, I think it works really well. But the, at the same time, like the, the body language, the expression work feels a lot more real. Um, and uh, this is a weird nitpicky thing. The book opens on Karen Page's grave, but the gravestone is literally just a cement rectangle with her name in block letters, which is like not what gravestones ever look like it's it's so odd it's really just it's a huge nitpick but it 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 stuck out to me because i was like oh nothing no gravestones like never look like this we we couldn't have done like another pass at this could have made it look a lot cooler especially for something that's like a splash page on page one but yeah that's a dumb thing to complain about i think that marvel night 20 is going to be a really fun celebration like it's saying a really fun celebration of uh, you know, what Marvel Knights was, um, which, you know, I, I went back to just check to see how many things are really under that imprint. It's it's a ton of stuff. But this issue, I mean, you, you have to be a Marvel Knights fan, I think, uh, to, to really care because the characters are definitely not exactly as you are thinking of them. You know, Kingpin shows up towards the end and, and some other characters. And, and uh, so, you know, again, the biggest question that Kate's is asking here is why. And if you have faith in the writing team that he's putting together to explore that in the context of this issue and the rest of the Marvel Knights characters, then I think that there's going to be a lot here for you that you'll like. Um, if not, you know, it's okay. Next up, we've got Star Wars Han Solo Imperial Cadet. This is from writer Robbie Thompson, artist Leonard Kirk, colorist Arif Prina, and letterer Joe Carmagno. Here is the solicit. Han Solo escapes Corellia by joining the Imperial Navy, vowing to return for Kira. But how does a thief, used to the chaos of the streets, adjust to the order and discipline of the military? Not well. Han's dream of becoming a pilot is quickly grounded as he realized he may not even survive basic training. So I have to say that this one, I was excited at the prospect of it when it was announced. Um, I think it's always... I grew up on Star Wars expanding universe stuff, you know, the little stories in between stuff. But, and and actually most of the Marvel comics that have come out um, that have been doing that kind of thing have been really cool. And so I was excited to see more Han Solo. 
but this one definitely didn't work for me. It, it sort of positions itself as taking a look at Han's time as an Imperial cadet, but the first half of the book is really just spent recapping, recapping the beginning of the solo film. I mean, I think we get like 10, 12 pages in and we're really just getting to like him getting his name. Uh, and I didn't really need to see that again. I mean, I just watched a movie for that. Uh, and I think that there's probably an understanding that if you're reading this book, you probably went to go see that movie. Uh, so I don't really know why they, you know, Thompson and Kirk and the editing, the editor, editorial team decided to take the time to do that. You know, um, it, it, it feels like they're kind of like weirdly biding their time or, or just trying to pad out like half an issue for a six issue trade, you know, just give us five issues if you're going to do that, you know, um, I do, you know, there, there is a bit, uh, that Thompson does that I, I do think kind of brings the book around in kind of a, a cute way, you know, it opens up with the splash page, it closes the splash page, the contexts of each are kind of similar, but both feature the same line of dialogue, which is fun, and, and Thompson has a solid handle of Han's voice, uh, the book just feels weirdly insubstantial like you kind of read it and go oh this is why they skipped over this stuff in the movie like you 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 haven't given me anything here that has me clamoring for it and there's no big cool reveal of like here's why we have to tell this story and i understand that that's because it has to not step on the toes of what did happen in the film uh or, or what might happen in the next film or moving forward you know i you know with some licensed stuff unfortunately there's not a lot of freedom there but if there was no story to tell then uh, why are we getting this book you know and i and i think leonard kirk's an interesting artist to to tap for this uh, i think he's a he's generally a good artist but he, there's such a lack of consistency in this issue um he's not really sure what this han solo looks like sometimes he kind of looks like uh alden uh who, who i could i can't i can't even pronounce his last name from the solo film and sometimes he looks kind of like Harrison Ford and sometimes he kind of looks like neither of them but you're just kind of supposed to know that it's Han. Stormtroopers are just not Kirk's strong suit he doesn't draw them looking really anything they look kind of like like uh they look kind of like Stormtroopers but kind of if you like like one of your old Stormtrooper toys melted a little bit like it's like oh it's definitely a Stormtrooper but it like looks a little off you know, so they look, sometimes they just look a little, a little bit goofy. And yeah, so, you know, that's just kind of where this one lives. It, it's, it's this Star Wars story that just feels like it doesn't, it hasn't convinced me why I need to read it yet. And I, I think that makes it fail as a number one issue. You know, I, I think that your goal with a number one issue is to kind of come right out of the gate and say, hey, this is why you need to be reading this. And with the Star Wars stuff, especially I think there needs to be an even greater sense of urgency because why not just go watch the movies? Um, and so this one where it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really showing us in between scenes from the film, essentially, you know, it's a period of time that a chunk of time that's been missing, but it's filling in something that like we was kind of explained to us already, you know, we knew it happened. So, uh, you know, you'd, you'd hope that there was something interesting that happened during that time. So unfortunately the combination of sort of approach, not the writing so much, but the approach, um, and the, the art just being pretty inconsistent doesn't, doesn't give us a lot to, uh, to grab onto here. So there's not a lot to like here at all. I think you can, uh, 
think you can safely skip uh, Imperial Cadet. And uh, next up, we've got Doctor Who, the 13th Doctor from Titan Comics. This is from writer Jody Hauser, artist Rachel Stott, colorist Enrica Aaron Angiolini, coloring assistant Viviana Spinelli, flatters Sarah Michelli and Andrea Moretto. Pages 14 and 15 are noted in the credits as being by Georgia Sposito and Adele Matera, and lettering by Richard Starkings, Sarah Jacobs, and John Roselle. Here is the solicit. The Doctor regenerates into her most thrilling incarnation yet, played by Jodie Whittaker and traveling alongside three brand new companions. Experience mind-blowing challenges and dynamic adventures through time and space, right alongside the Doctor and her friends, a new series for a new era on the TARDIS. So I'm an extremely casual fan of Doctor Who. I have definitely not watched all of it. I haven't even watched all the newer stuff. I The last Doctor Who I paid any serious attention to, I think, was Eleven, if that's Matt Smith. Yeah. Um, so this was like a little, I mean, this wasn't, it wasn't super hard to follow. Uh, Hauser does a, a, a good job of sticking to the general Doctor Who formula. We see something happen with characters who are unrelated to the Doctor. Then we see the Doctor and her companions, and then something kind of mysterious happens, and then eventually those two threads kind of converge. And so I think your enjoyment of the book will have a lot to do with having a sense of the actors themselves, um, since Hauser seems to be doing the best to write in their voice and with their sort of specific vocal rhythms. And I think, like, I, I haven't watched this Doctor, but I still have, like, a, a familiarity with, with the... Uh, the franchise, and, and so I have a sort of uh, sense of of who the Doctor Who character is in general. You know, that wasn't like a hurdle or anything uh, to get over. And, and you know, you can kind of tell that vocal rhythm from the way the lettering is. So shout out to those letters for uh, being able to nail that. Uh, and the art team seems massive. Uh, I know that I listed so many, so many names there. Um, but still, the issue flows really well. Uh, Stott has uh, definitely has a sense of the characters. You know, they look like they do on TV. It's uh, even when they're introduced in the opening, uh, they use the photos of the actors instead of drawings of them. Um, so you can really see one to one that that uh, Stott does a really good job with that. And she doesn't have to do too much to give us a sense of where we are, um, which frees uh, frees her up to give us some pretty impressive shots of like the TARDIS and. You know, oh, they're just like casually in the year thirty nine twelve, and so we see these like neb these sentient nebulas and things like that. Uh, so you know, overall, I thought it was pretty effective. I, I think certain things went over my head. I'm not the biggest uh, Doctor Who fan, so I, I figured I'd give some insight from the biggest Doctor Who fan I know. Uh, he's uh, one of my colleagues at Newsarama, Justin Partridge, and he actually covered this issue, and so I just have a little bit from his review. I'll link to the review in the description for the uh, episode if you'd like to read the whole thing. Uh, so here's what he said. This is kind of the, uh, the end of his, uh, this is the conclusion of his review. That said, I wish the issue's plot was more substantial. While I'm glad to see the rifts from the previous Titan Limited series are going to get some kind of follow-up, I worry about how this will hook newer readers who might have missed it. Stuff that happens around the edges of the main story seems really fun, however. Though relegated to a framing device from the cold open, Hauser introduces a pair of time-hopping treasure hunters who are seemingly hoarding vast amounts of riches for a gorgeously creepy-looking monster. In real talk, they feel a lot more interesting than the actual matter at hand. I feel like if we would have gotten a bit more of these new characters and less of the rifts, 
these this issue would have been a real winner. But don't let this completely discourage you from experiencing the 13th Doctor number one. Fans of the currently airing Series 11 will find a lot to love here, as will people that have been patiently waiting but eagerly um, for this Team TARDIS uh, comic book debut. As a single entry point into Doctor Who for new readers, this issue misses the mark a bit, but the passion and accuracy of Hauser's script and the art team's gorgeously realized artwork makes this at least a fun read with loads of potential. So thank you, Justin, for that. Uh, I checked with Justin earlier to make sure that it was okay that I quoted him. Uh, and I think in future episodes, if I have somebody that is a specific expert in something, I'll just have them record a little so you guys don't have to just hear my voice every time. Um, so yeah, so there you have it from somebody with a little bit more uh, experience than myself. I believe there was a previous Titan limited series that did, did kind of lead into this, the road to the 13th Doctor. Um, so some of those plot points got picked up. Um, and it, it's not super, it wasn't super obvious to me that that was the case. I just kind of figured it was like a typical Doctor Who episode where it just kind of picks up and you just go, okay, they're traveling through time. Here we go. Uh, but yeah, so that is Doctor Who, the 13th Doctor. And we only have one episode, uh, one issue left. Um, I know I kind of have been speeding through this episode. Uh, I know we did eight books and we are uh, not super, super far in. Most of that has to do with the fact that I've probably been drinking coffee this entire time. And uh, it has sped things along a little bit. Uh, the last book that we're covering today is The Green Lantern from DC Comics. From writer Grant Morrison, artist Liam Sharp, color Steve Olif, and letter Tom Orzachowski. The solicit is as follows. Superstar writer Grant Morrison returns to DC alongside red-hot artist Liam Sharp to launch a new ongoing series, The Green Lantern. In this debut issue, when Earth space cop Hal Jordan encounters an alien hiding in plain sight, it sets off a chain of events that rocks the Green Lantern core and quite possibly the multiverse at large to its very core. There's an intergalactic conspiracy afoot, as well as a traitor in the Green Lantern Corps' ranks, so strap in for more mind-bending adventures in this masterpiece in the making. Yeah, this is my pick of the week. I loved this book. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I, you know, make no bones about being a huge Grant Morrison fan. He's probably my favorite comic book writer. I'm looking at a signed issue of Animal Man right in front of me. It's sitting at my desk. I was pretty on board. I was pretty primed for this one, you know, even beforehand, but I don't love everything he does. So, and, and I don't love Green Lantern, but, uh, you know, Morrison takes Green Lantern more of a space cop procedural direction here. And, uh, I think that that's a big part of making me like this. Um, you know, I, I had read a bit of the Jeff Johns run and I read Rebirth and I just didn't love the, all the color spectrum stuff, uh, so much. So one thing that's important to note about Morrison's approach here is that the title is very intentional. So the the title, The Green Lantern, is important. It's not Green Lantern. The Green Lantern is Morrison riffing on The Blue Lamp, which was a 60s police film that is in itself a reference to the just the police lamp that ha hangs outside of all British police stations. So the The Green Lantern is kind of like the DC cosmic equivalent of that. And I think it's really the procedural approach that makes the book sing. The core is the focus, not really just Hal. You know, Hal's part of the story, but we don't even open on Hal. Um, we don't, it takes us a little while to even get to him. And, you know, we eventually do get to, uh, we, we get to a big splash that is half of his head 
uh, as he's kind of like looking up at the sky, which is really interesting. Um, it's such like a weird use of space, but I really liked it. And so the structure that, that you know, playing with that pr- police procedural kind of uh, structure and, and Morrison's kind of even said that since he's been working in TV more lately, uh, he sort of took a lot of the lessons that he learned uh, in that arena and, and, and threw it in here. And so the structure is a lot more playful and humorous than I think you might expect, which is really good. I mean, the promise of these like bigger stories is still in the background. You know, we heard it in this little intergalactic conspiracy and a traitor in the Green Lantern corners. All this stuff is happening. Meanwhile, like the first thing that happens is like a spider guy and like this like wombat looking guy are space pirates that are get caught by these other Green Lanterns. And one of those Green Lanterns is a vi- uh, is a virus named Floozel Flem, you know, like that, like that's the first joke of the book is like, you know, you, uh, Floozel Flem doesn't catch you, you catch Floozel Flem, you know, because he's it, it, like, I don't know, that's just delightful, just delightful little weirdness that's like, yeah, of course, like viruses are living organisms, it would be very um, beneficial to the Green Lantern Corps to incorporate a virus uh, as part of the core. And so, you know, Morrison ties up a pretty neat reintroduction to the core and to how while seeding out all this other stuff that reminds us that one Morrison is a crazy student of the entire DC universe especially all the weirdness of it but also reminds us like the DC universe is huge and you know it's really 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 big and uh in a certain way I'm so thankful to have Morrison back because I think sometimes we forget just how big some of this stuff is and he's a writer who's always able to remind us of that. And I I really love Liam Sharp here. Uh, I haven't always been the biggest fan of his work. I thought his Wonder Woman stuff was okay. Uh, and Brave and the Bold was, was cool. Um, he doesn't take like a straight ahead superhero approach here. So instead we get these like kind of like grittier weirdo space settings that I think really play to what Morrison's doing in the script. And it also puts Earth in greater contrast to the cosmic stuff. You know, um, Morrison has said that that Earth plays a, a big role in this uh, story, but but uh, as a means of kind of grounding everything. So Sharp makes sure that like space doesn't look anything like Earth, and has its own you know its own feel to it, and the planets feel in their own way, and the and oh, a new Oa feels its own way. And these things feel distinct. And even the panel layouts change and the page layouts change. And like that's really cool. And it's really intentional. And it's really great to see an artist doing that. Um, and I love that Sharp is really not afraid of using a lot of black on his pages. Like There's a pretty heavy inking across everything. Which one I think is super important for space stories. Uh, but is also just, you know, he, he does do a lot of hatching and stuff on 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 characters for shading which I know a lot of people don't love but I think it fits for this story one thing that I really noticed though at the same time was that the characters just there's something about them that is just a little bit like almost just like intentionally like a little weird like a little bit Fletcher Hanks to them uh uh where they're like they're like the proportions might be like slightly off like Hal Jordan's like when he turns into Green Lantern like his legs feel like a little bit too long. His chest feels like a little bit too big, but like in a good way, like in a way that you're like, oh, this is like weird spaceman 
you know, this is a book that should feel a little bit alien and strange. Um, and even the, like, one of the aliens, this, like, little crystal guy, that's that's an artist who, you know, I know that Sharp has talked about how he'd wanted to work with Morrison for such a long time, and he was so glad that they were finally able to get together for this, but that's somebody who's like, oh, you know, I can definitely bring something to the table here as well. And, you know, we've seen Sharp recently, especially with Wonder Woman and stuff, draw like monsters and things like that. And so he gets to draw some just like cool aliens, um, these very severe looking um, just like locales and things like that. And 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 it's great. I mean, it's a it's a really good combination of writer and artist here. And, and like I said, I am definitely a, a bit of a mark for Grant Morrison in general. But it, this issue just really reminded me how much I miss the style and voice in the DCU. And it showed me that he still got a few tricks up his sleeve. I wasn't expecting some of the, the humor that's in the book that's there in almost like a more, in a weird way, like almost like Brooklyn Nine-Nine kind of way. Like that might be maybe funnier than he's actually doing here. But, you know, there's like jokes, which... I don't know, maybe it's just been a little while since I've had Grant Morrison in the DCU, so I'm just very excited about it. But, you know, it's great to have his voice back. It's great to have his sense of scope back. Um, It's great to see him seeing something like the color spectrum in Green Lantern and going, oh, I'm going to take that further. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, who else can have Green Lantern facing off against God in issue three? I mean, that's literally what's going to happen. Or as literally as, you know, you can take a Grant Morrison comic. So, uh, yeah, so that's my pick of the week. That's Green, the Green Lantern number one. Um, super, super cool. And that's all the books that we have today. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, to recap real quick, we had Empty Man from Boom Studios. That's by Colin Bunn and Jesus Hervas. Uh, and uh, that's a horror book that is sort of a continuation slash remake slash reboot of Bun's 2014 series and you know I thought that I I really like the art on it um but I felt like uh Bun's approach is a little bit schizophrenic in terms of like what the story really is uh and it doesn't really get going before it just really abruptly ends so you know it has elements of possession zombie and murder cult stories here but it's not clear to me what it's supposed to be um, so whether or not you're on board is really going to hinge on your feelings about what the threat is uh, and not necessarily the characters because I don't really think he takes enough time to really get into it. Uh, next up, we have uh, James Bond 007 from Dynamite. Uh, that's from from writer Greg Pak and artist Mark Lamming. And this is the beginning of a new odd job epic with Pak kind of reimagining odd job. And it's a fun little book. It's It's very solid if you like James Bond, if you're a James Bond fan. Uh, if you want to see a kind of more modern take on Odd Job, which is fun, you know, uh, I'd mentioned that it, it almost has like a meet cute rom com kind of feel to it. Uh, that was something that uh, my editor, David Pepos, had noted in his review. Uh, great use of color in this issue. Really solid, again, really solid James Bond story. I think that the fight scenes feel a little bit static. I think that might just be the close quarters of them, but I think as we get to dig into more of the James Bond world with this team, we're going to have a lot of fun because uh, they seem to have a solid handle and a a good feel for each other as well. Then we have Battlestar Galactica Classic, number one from Dynamite. That's from writer John Jackson Miller uh, and artist Daniel HDR. And this is a miniseries 
that is taking place at the end of the Battlestar Galactica, the 70s Battlestar Galactica series. While I'm not super familiar with classic Battlestar, uh, I had a lot of fun with this issue. Some good space drama stuff, you know, morality and survival is really at the heart of Battlestar, and, and Miller does a good job of getting that. Um, Daniel Ashiar's work pretty good with the various ships and doing the renderings of these, you know, actors as these classic characters. Didn't really love his aliens as much. I felt like they were a little inconsistent, and that kind of hurt some of the drama because some of the some of the expression work wasn't as strong. But uh, on the whole, varying the spirit of BSG and certainly a fun way to celebrate 40 years of the franchise, especially if it's one of your favorites. Then we had Outer Darkness from Image Skybound. That's by writer John Lehman with art by Afuchan and lettering by Pat Brousseau. This one had a great setup. Uh, Lehman is a super funny writer and uh, he's doing his own take on kind of Battlestar and Star Trek and, and a little bit of Star Wars thrown in there too. The strength of this, and, and this is something we saw with Chu and, and, and Lehman's work with Rob Gilroy, is that really great, expressive art with strong character designs is really going to make these Lehman scripts sing. And that's exactly what's going on here. You know, this is all of those kind of sci-fi stories mixed with a little bit of those sci-fi horror stories, kind of like Alien, but kind of turned up in like a weird direction. So, you know, the warp engine is a god and and they're ghosts in space. Uh, and and it's just it's all a little bit ridiculous but it's all it's a little bit ridiculous in all the right ways and so i'm excited to see it all come next from that and we had a couple of marvel books uh one is marvel knights 20th uh it's from writer donnie cates art by travel foreman and Derek friedoffs colors by matt milla and lettering by Corey petit and this is sort of Again, another like celebration book uh, for Marvel, the Marvel Knights line. It's not a relaunch or a reboot. And uh, it kind of drops us into this world where characters that we know don't know who they are. Kate's is kind of show running this little, this little celebration. So I think this issue stands as him doing a little bit of the setup heavy lifting for his uh, writing, uh, you know, the rest of his writing team. Um, we got some gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous work from Travel Foreman. I'd actually really love to see him on a Daredevil ongoing at some point because his art is, I mean, he's really uh, stepped it up over the past couple of years and uh, he looks, his work looks really great here. If you're not super familiar with Marvel Knights, you don't really have to be, but you probably should be familiar with the tone of it. It was kind of a more gr kind of grim and gritty version of these kind of street level heroes at the time and and uh you know i guess not that daredevil needed to get any grimmer and, and grittier but so it's hard to say what this is yet because the biggest question asked here is why you know and and that's what we're supposed to come away with is a lot of questions and so in terms of that uh, I think Kate's does the job. Your enjoyment of it is going to be whether or not you have faith in the rest of his writing team of Matt Rosenberg, Teeny Howard, and uh, Vita Ayala to really deliver on those concepts. But if you do, then this one's going to be for you. And we had Star Wars Han Solo Imperial Cadet. It's from writer Robbie Thompson, artist Leonard Kirk, uh, coloring by Arif Pina, Prina, and lettering by Joe Carmagna. And this one just really didn't work for me. You know, it's trying to tell the story of what it was like for Han Solo when he was uh, training to be a pilot for the Empire and the Imperial Navy. Thompson and Kirk spend half the book 
just kind of recapping a bunch of stuff from the solo movie that I don't really think they need to do. And then when they finally get to show us something, they don't really have much to show us. Um, You know, I think Thompson has a good sense of Han's voice, but Kirk's art is just really inconsistent. He can't get his renderings uh, very consistent for, I mean, even like the stormtroopers. And so everything kind of has like a weird look to it. If you're really clamoring for that story about, you know, the in-between of that passage of time and those scenes uh, between uh, when Han and Kira get separated to kind of when Han meets Chewie. You might find something you like here, but I don't really think there's enough going on in this first issue to really win anybody over. Then we had two more books. We had Doctor Who, the 13th Doctor from Titan. As a casual Doctor Who fan, uh, you know, I had some fun with this. Uh, as my colleague Justin Partridge noted in his review, uh, you know it has a it has a kind of slight plot. Uh, you, you know it could have been maybe been beefed up a little bit more, but in terms of given a Doctor Who dynamic, especially for fans of the current Doctor and the current series that's coming out now, um, you know you're gonna find something very recognizable here. Which, if that's what you're looking for from your Doctor Who comics, then great. I definitely like Rachel Stott's artwork on it, uh, and I think some of the coloring stuff was really good, too. I mean, this looks, again, for a licensed comic, it looks the way it's supposed to look. Uh, As uh, Justin said, you know, it might be a little bit hard for new readers, but the script is very accurate, and the art team's gorgeously realized artwork makes this at least a fun read with loads of potential. And then last but not least, again, was my pick of the week. That's The Green Lantern from DC Comics. I don't know. I don't have too much more to say about this than if you're on board for Grant Morrison cosmic DC weirdness, uh, and you should be, uh, then you have to pick this up. I mean, the art is uh, by Liam Sharp is uh, just kind of wild, and it's just, uh, it's just wonderful. Green, the Green Lantern uh, as kind of police procedural, but, you know, where everything's really dialed up uh, to a thousand on the cosmic scale. So I'm really looking forward to more from this book, and uh, you should definitely check it out. And that's all for me today. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, it's super fun doing this podcast, and uh, we've been uh, having some having some fun with it so far. Uh, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you use. It really helps people find the show. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at new number one pod. Uh, you can send us an email at new number one cast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at PE Lightning. And, uh, you know, I write for Newsarama, you know, two or three times a week. Uh, so if you follow me, you'll get links to all that stuff. And, other nonsense that I tweet about. Uh, And that's all for me. Next week, we'll have a bunch more books. And uh, yeah. So anyway, have a good one. Bye.